We're going to start seeing polio again. We're going to start seeing measles again. I'm going to have kids with 104 beavers. And of course, we're going to be worried that's coronavirus. And we're going to have to be, you know, legitimately concerned that they have one or two diseases. And I don't know what that does to a child to have both at the same time. Experts agree that once we have a COVID-19 vaccine, we'll need the vast majority of the population to take it. Enough so we get herd immunity. But the rise of the anti-vaccine movement has already led to outbreaks of diseases we thought were long gone. And now, in the midst of a global pandemic, the risk of further outbreaks is heightened because parents of young kids are afraid to go to the doctor's office to get their shots. This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and a health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. This is the final episode of our three-part series on vaccines. As we've already discussed, testing and manufacturing a vaccine present enormous logistical and ethical challenges. But once we finally have a COVID-19 vaccine, and it's safe, effective, and available, how do we make sure people actually take it? You know, Zeke, in earlier episodes of the show, we talked about the downstream consequences of this coronavirus in terms of other health conditions, people not seeking out or not being able to get important, even life-saving medical care. But we haven't talked about preventive care, and we haven't talked much about children. Yeah, it's often the case that people put off preventative care because they don't have an acute problem, they're not in pain or have some other issue. And so Preventative care is almost always the first thing that people delay if there's a cost problem or an inconvenience problem, and it has long downstream consequences that we often ignore until they sort of hit us in the face. And so I'm really worried about, for adults, a lot of cancer screenings, and for kids, a lot of the prevention. Most of what pediatricians do is try to prevent bad things from happening to children, And if you don't end up going to your pediatrician or you're afraid of going to your pediatrician, a lot of things will not be taken care of. Yeah, I definitely remember, you know, as a parent, and I'm sure you do too, that relationship with the pediatrician is so important and keeping track of those appointments as best you can. And also, kids get a lot of vaccines. Diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, polio, hepatitis B, hemophilus, and pneumococcus and rotavirus are all given at two, four, and six months old. Dr. Linda Goldstein is a pediatrician in Chevy Chase, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and she's a friend of mine. At a year, um, most children will get their MMR and their chickenpox, hepatitis A. It's a lot of vaccines, but very few reactions, and it's been standard for years. We take it for granted, but it's really a miracle of modern medicine that over the last 70 or so years, we mostly don't have to worry about all these childhood diseases because people have accepted all these vaccines as part of life. But with families afraid to leave the house, let alone visit the doctor because of COVID-19, vaccination rates are down dramatically. Last month, the CDC published a study from Michigan showing that fewer than half of infants five months or younger are up to date on their vaccines. That number is even lower for families on Medicaid. 
So it's up to pediatricians like Dr. Linda Goldstein to try to prevent another public health crisis on top of the coronavirus pandemic, sometimes by extraordinary means. We won't bring in right now anybody sick. I don't care if they're two weeks old or if they're 22 years old. Instead, her office is doing telemedicine visits for sick children. That's because the priority is making sure that families still feel safe bringing in their youngest healthy children for checkups and vaccinations. What we're really worried about now as pediatricians is people hesitating to do the routine vaccines, and the famous one is MMR, measles, and we send them out into the world again in the fall. Guess what? We're going to start seeing routine childhood illnesses again in numbers we haven't seen in our lifetime. We're going to start seeing polio again. We're going to start seeing measles again. We're going to see pertussis. That is going to be terrible at the same time as a second wave of coronavirus. You know, second wave at the end of the fall, beginning in in the winter again, that's influenza time of year. And I'm going to have kids with 104 fevers and coughs. And of course, we're going to be worried that's coronavirus. And we're going to have to be, you know, legitimately concerned that they have one or two diseases. And I don't know what that does to a child to have both at the same time. Even for children who aren't sick, if they're older than two, Dr. Goldstein is doing routine checkups remotely. We are bringing those kids in that need immunizations and in their cars, our nurses are going out in PPE and giving immunizations in order to try to avoid the vaccine rates going down. Families drive to the office, pull into the parking garage, then call for a nurse to come down. We have kids crying and screaming and spitting when they're getting vaccines. We are exposed to saliva. So when they go down to the garage, it's in full PPE an N95 face mask, a face shield, a gown, and two sets of gloves. The reason we're wearing two sets of gloves is partially because we're walking down steps and opening doors. We take off one set of gloves when we're actually touching the patient, so there's no chance that we're giving it to them. Most of the time for the kids, we are opening the door, and the parent is either having the child on their lap or in the car seat, and the nurse sometimes is literally sitting in the car to do it. The whole idea is we don't want to hurt kids, so nurses are trying to do it as quickly as they can. Even with this elaborate procedure in place, Linda's had to spend hours on the phone convincing parents to bring in their kids for vaccinations. You know, I honestly don't like scare tactics. I feel like people should not need them. But I was using scare tactics, such as you don't want your child to get polio, do you? So for all the effort that doctors like Linda Goldstein are putting into making sure kids get vaccinated, there's still a whole movement of people who are against getting these vaccines at all. Jonathan, where did that come from? Well, Zeke, as soon as there started to be widespread vaccination against smallpox in the early 19th century, there was a movement against it. It was considered to be unchristian because the material came from animals. People worried about the efficacy or the safety of it. It was considered by some people to be a violation of personal liberty. The first anti-vaccination league in the United States was founded all the way back in 1879. 
and it's ebbed and flowed ever since then, mixed with a kind of American strain, you know, don't tread on me, anti-government individualism. But it really picked up steam again in the 1990s when a British doctor named Andrew Wakefield was one of a number of co-authors of a paper in an important medical journal, The Lancet. They linked the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to autism. Now, it was based on only 12 cases. It was uncontrolled. Wasn't it eventually debunked as sort of fabricated completely? Yeah, I'm not long after a British journalist named Brian Deere was able to uncover evidence to show that Wakefield actually falsified the data. But it wasn't until what 12 years after the paper that the Lancet finally retracted it. Now, you and I know, you know, what a retraction means in science. It's about the worst thing that can happen to you. But unfortunately, the damage was done. Parents panicked after it was published. It was in the Lancet, an important journal. And, you know, we'll never know how much damage was actually done when children didn't get their vaccines. It's the kind of thing that just sticks in the public mind, and it's very hard to pull it back. Yeah. So even though the data show that the vast majority of Americans trust and support vaccination, the forces on the other side, these anti-vaxxers, can be very loud, very effective in pushing their point of view. And part of the problem with this Wakefield episode is that he was a medical doctor, although he was in fact barred from practicing medicine in the United Kingdom after this. And so anybody who looks like they have expertise adds fuel to the fire. And, you know, in this case, Zeke, there's been, I've lost count, at least half a dozen intense studies that couldn't find any link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Yeah. And I think it certainly adds to the public perception that we don't have an explanation for autism. So people are grasping at any straw and vaccines seem to be one of them that are sort of temporally, you know, coeval with getting a uh, vaccine. And so people say, wow, that must be the reason. And it just keeps going on and on. Just in January of this year, which already feels like a long, long time ago, they defeated a bill in the state of New Jersey, which would have eliminated non-medical exemptions to mandatory vaccination. For example, exemptions based on religion, philosophy, or personal belief. Yeah. One of the people who lobbied successfully against this bill to preserve these exemptions was Avi Schnall. My name is Avi Schnell. I live in Lakewood, New Jersey, and I'm the New Jersey director for the Aguda Israel of America. Aguda Israel is an organization advocating on behalf of Orthodox Jewish communities throughout the United States. So my main role in the New Jersey office is mostly government, government advocacy, lobbying. And yes, he lobbied against the recent bill that would have gotten rid of religious exemptions to vaccination but not because his organization is against vaccines per se. Our involvement wasn't regarding immunizations, good or not good. The overwhelming majority of our community um, vaccinate their kids. Majority of the schools require all children to be vaccinated in order to attend their schools. I'm talking about the private religious Jewish schools. So as a community, by and large, we are pro-vaccine. What was concerning to us was an elimination for those that do have religious beliefs against it. We have to preserve that. For some families, their religious beliefs against vaccination actually come from personal experience. This, this is not just what I hear. I, I actually know these cases firsthand. I've met the family. There were several families that were the same position as this person. They had one child, was vaccinated, 
and the vaccine had terrible effects. And the second child also had terrible effects on the vaccine. They had a third child that had terrible effects on the vaccine. They had their fourth child, and someone suggested maybe you shouldn't vaccinate. They went to their doctor, a very well-known, you know, well-respected pediatrician. The doctor said that you don't qualify for a medical exemption. He went to a rabbi that is pro-vaccine. I know the rabbi. And the rabbi said, based on halachic ramifications and halachic considerations. The word halachic, or halacha, refers to Jewish religious law. And the rabbi said, based on halachic ramifications and halachic considerations, if you have three children that were all affected and now you have the fourth child, do not vaccinate. And he did not vaccinate his fourth child. And he had four children since then. He has seven children in total. All of those four children, the four younger children that were not vaccinated, are healthy, robust, well children. His first three children are all severely affected. The first child is autistic of this family. The second child has severe allergies. And the third child has a feeding issue. He's not able to hold down his food. He needs to be fed with a feeding tube. Again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't tell you the exact correlation and causation of all those effects to which vaccines, but this is the reality. This is the the facts on the ground, so to speak. So what was the religious justification for refusing to vaccinate the fourth child in this particular family? Much of Jewish religious law is based on a book called the Talmud, which collects opinions and arguments of thousands of rabbis over many generations. Avi Schnall gave an example from the Talmud. I'll give you an example of what's from a Talmudic example. A family had a baby and they circumcised the baby. The baby died. They had a second baby. They circumcised the son. The son died. Now they have a third baby. The Talmud tells us, do not circumcise that third baby. If two things happen to a family by doing a certain you know, medical practice, don't do it on the third. When does that apply? How do we apply that? Does it always apply? Now you need to go to the um, the experts, and you know that's why the uh, that's above my pay scale. But this is a concept that exists. We are not at all promoting not vaccinating. Again, my my three children are all vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. If I had a fourth child, I'd vaccinate the fourth child. We are, as a community, generally majority pro-vaccine. But it does exist this small, definitely small, definitely a minority. But there are those that do have very strong religious beliefs about it. I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure what the answer is regarding, yes, we do have to find a way that we could have both priorities living together. Public health, which is priority number one, and um, religious liberty, which is you know tied at priority number one. If and when there's a widely available COVID-19 vaccine, Rabbi Schnall expects his constituents will be just as eager to take it as everyone else in society. Our community will take the vaccine like every other community will take the vaccine. That minority that's anti-vaxxers, what will they do? I can't speak on behalf of them. I don't know.
Zeke, one of the things we didn't hear is how you could justify exposing other children to risk if those four kids haven't been vaccinated. It just seems like we keep coming back to this again and again. Is there any validity to this stuff at all? Well, let me, you know, one of my reactions to Avi's story is, first of all, the objection isn't religious in any way. There's no philosophical or spiritual or textual objection. Something bad happened to the kid. I correlate it with the vaccine, and therefore I don't want the vaccine. But as he himself says, I don't know if it's causal or correlative, you know, but this is what the feeling of the parent is. And so I think putting it in the religious philosophical envelope, I think is a big mistake. And the second thing, I think you're absolutely right. By just looking at his family, he doesn't take into account two other things, it seems to me. First, what is the chance that we get below the level of herd immunity because there are other people like him, and therefore we risk outbreaks like of measles or other things that can kill children? And the second is, his kids might grow up and they might end up at like Disneyland and get the measles because they weren't vaccinated and be at higher risk as adults. Those risk factors haven't been factored into these considerations at all. Yeah, part of our problem is we don't have a collective memory of the implications of diphtheria and tuberculosis and smallpox and cholera, all these horrible diseases that we associate with decades ago. But, you know, we're still biological creatures and we still swim in the same ecosystem. We just can't seem to get past this point where some people will grasp at any explanation they can find for some misfortune. And it's, it, it actually can lead to even you know, worse misfortunes. So fortunately, there are people who are still around who've actually worked on vaccines for serious diseases. And one of them is our colleague at Penn, Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP. He not only administers vaccines and studies vaccines, he was part of the team that actually created a vaccine for rotavirus, which causes diarrhea. And he was on the other side of this recent fight in New Jersey. He was advising advocates in support of the bill that would have eliminated most exemptions to mandatory vaccination. He's written many books, including Deadly Choices, how the anti-vaccine movement threatens us all, and bad advice, or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information. Here's Paul Offit. So, Paul, I know you were involved in supporting this mandatory vaccination bill in New Jersey. Ultimately, the bill was defeated. And one of the major concerns there was about preserving a religious exemption to vaccination. What exactly does a religious exemption mean? To me, it has no meaning. It means that my religion forbids me to get a vaccine. Now, what religion forbids you to get a vaccine? Near as I can tell, the only one that I can imagine is Christian science, which is not a big contingent in New Jersey. Nor did anybody ever talk about religious exemptions. They, you know, the anti-vaccine people talked about the fact that vaccines cause autism and all the usual things that vaccines don't cause that they claim that they do. I argued that it's the opposite of religion. I mean, religion teaches you to care about your children, care about your family, care about your community. It's a profoundly unreligious thing to do to put your child in harm's way. But really, nobody seemed to be talking about religion. Not really. And it's, you know how it works, Zeke. I mean, in this country, the minute you say, this is my belief, you know, people stand back and put their hands up because nobody likes to tell people how to practice their faith. You actually do think it's the right thing to do to mandate that everyone get a vaccine and it's constitutional. Is that right? 
Yes. Well, it is constitutional, right? I mean, Jacobson v. Massachusetts in 1905 pretty much made that clear. But Wait, what, what, what is Jacobson v. Massachusetts? It was a uh, Lutheran minister in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who refused to get a vaccine for religious reasons. And there was a smallpox outbreak in Cambridge at the time. He either had to get the vaccine or pay a fine. He refused both. And that worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court, where in an almost unanimous ruling, it was stated basically that this public health agency in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, could compel him to get a vaccine or pay a fine, which is to say that it sort of supported mandatory vaccination. But, you know, then it sort of fell to the states to allow certain exemptions, religious exemptions initially, then philosophical exemptions. So, And you would get rid of all those exemptions, as I'm understanding you. That's right. I would eliminate philosophical and religious exemptions and leave only medical exemptions because neither of them makes sense. I think there's, there's nothing religious about putting your child in harm's way. And philosophical exemptions, really? And the other one I don't like is personal belief exemptions. You know, vaccines aren't a belief system. They're an evidence-based system, and they stand on a mountain of evidence. I don't think it should be your right to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. You're not just making a decision for yourself or your child. You're making a decision for others. I feel that way when President Trump doesn't wear a mask. He's making a decision for other people who he's coming in contact with also. It's a selfish thing to do. So from your experience developing the rotavirus vaccine, I know that took many, many years, but how long do you think it's going to take from the time we start large-scale testing for a COVID vaccine to the time at which most of us can feel pretty good that this thing works? Yeah, I think the the issue is going to be how well it works. You know, we're not going to have a measles vaccine. In other words, if you're given two doses of measles-containing vaccine, 97% of people that get two doses of measles-containing vaccine will be protected for the rest of their lives against all measles-associated disease, mild, moderate, severe, asymptomatic. You're done with measles. I mean, I'll just refer to that as sterilizing immunity. That's not going to happen with this vaccine. I think more likely you're going to have incomplete and short-lived immunity, meaning short-lived meaning probably a few years at most, certainly not decades, incomplete meaning you should have protection against moderate to severe disease, thus keeping you out of the hospital and out of the morgue, but probably not against a mild disease or asymptomatic reinfection where you might be shedding and might still be contagious. So I think there's a lot at stake here. And this plays out either one of two ways. It plays out either one as the movie Contagion played out, which is people are lining up to get the vaccine and vaccines are the hero of this story. Or two, you know, we're going to shake what is already sort of a fragile vaccine confidence in this country and uh, put that at risk. So can we talk about the vaccine confidence? Because you probably are the country's leading expert on the anti-vax movement. Do you think they're going to really rise up against this vaccine, despite the fact that the vast majority of the population really is desperate to get it and get back to normalcy? Yes. Do I think that they'll do that? If this vaccine was perfect, they would do that. I mean, they are against vaccines, period. So so they will find temporal associations between someone who got a vaccine and then something happened and they'll say, see, the vaccine did that. That's who they are. They're conspiracy theorists. There are no amount of data that will ever convince them that any vaccine is ever safe and effective. I'm not worried about them. That's actually not what I mean by vaccine confidence. We've lost their confidence. I'm talking about 
the parent, for example, in this country who is willing to give uh, 14 different vaccines to their children in the first few years of life, which can mean as many as 27 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases most of these parents don't see and have never seen and using biological fluids that uh, they don't understand. And I think that's a confidence they have in us. 90% of parents vaccinate their children fully. That's who I worry about, that you could really do harm here because we're scared, because we're terrified by this virus, we're paralyzed by this virus, and we're willing to accept a certain degree of uncertainty, which is fine. But the question is, what degree of uncertainty? And and this is where we could get burned. Well, what do you think would cause people to, you know, say, I'm not taking that vaccine? How serious do the side effects have to be? I think people would accept fever and, you know, that the symptoms associated with fever, you know, headache, muscle pain, chills. I think they'd accept that to prevent a disease that's killing one to two thousand people a day in this country. I'm not sure they'd accept much more than that. But, you know, the people who are going to die really are people who are much older, who have comorbidities. That's who's going to die. And to be perfectly frank, it's very hard to make vaccines that are effective in that age group because of immunological senescence. When you get older, you know, you're less likely to make a good immune response. Look at the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is roughly 50% effective, but in the person who's over 65, it's virtually not effective. It's not particularly effective, that's for sure. I'm on the clinical trial subgroup committee of this NIH active group. We're hoping you get at least 50% efficacy and would be thrilled at 70%. If something proves 50% effective, we'll have millions of doses in the refrigerator ready to go. Millions of doses in the refrigerator doesn't protect one person. We still need to administer them. And as you have just pointed out, people are very reluctant to get vaccines administered. Are we going to have a problem actually getting hundreds of millions of people shots in their arms? I think it depends on the data. I I think if you have data that are published where you have expert after expert going on television and say, this is great, it looks safe, it's inducing an immune response that now we know from these efficacy trials are protective. Virtually 100% of people who are protected have this immune response and we've got the right dose. This is going to save our lives. It's going to get us back into... Philadelphia Eagles, Lincoln's financial field. It's going to get us into Franklin Institute, the big museums. It's going to get us back out there so we can live our lives again. I think people will line up for the vaccine. And how do you imagine actually administering it? We've talked to some doctors, pediatricians now, uh, where administering a vaccine is a whole rigmarole. They have to dress up in PPE. They're actually doing it in their parking lot rather than bringing patients into the office. Is that what you imagine? Or do you imagine we're going to have something different? I'll just give you my experience. When this all started, I wanted to get a Pneumavax. I'm over 60. Time to get a Pneumavax. I went to my CVS store. No, we're not doing vaccines anymore. My doctor's office is closed. How am I supposed to get a vaccine? It's a nightmare. I mean, hopefully as the months go by and we get out of our house into the world again, that we'll be walking into our doctor's office again. That certainly has to happen for children who are now under vaccinated. You're right. It's a nightmare. And I do think if you're talking about vaccinating tens of millions of people in the U.S., it's going to have to be in pharmacies. I don't think the doctor's offices alone can handle all that. Do you think we should actually employ uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, just go door to door, house to house and say, listen, the hundred houses on these two blocks, they're yours, you make sure everyone gets it kind of thing, the way they do in Sweden? I think it's a great idea. I I do. And and I think people would be much more willing to do it if it means that we can get our lives back again. So, Paul, I want to ask you one other question about this sort of mandatory vaccination item, which is 
Do you think we should actually administer it to people when they resist? What is the process? I think that you draw a line. I mean, in our hospital, you are expected to get an influenza vaccine, period. Not just doctors and nurses, anybody who can walk in the room, environmental services, dietary services. If you choose not to get an influenza vaccine, you have two weeks of unpaid leave to think about it. If you still don't want to get an influenza vaccine, you're fired. So we make it very clear that we are there to protect the children in our care, many of whom can't get a vaccine, many of whom are vulnerable for other reasons. It's not your right as a person who works in a hospital like that to expose children to unnecessary harm. And I feel the same way about society. I feel that the hospital is a microcosm of society where knowing that there are 500,000 people or so in this country who can't be vaccinated because they're getting cancer chemotherapy or biologicals for chronic diseases or too young, whatever the issue is, you have a responsibility to them sorry, you're part of this society, you have a responsibility to them. And so you draw a line. You don't get to work at the hospital you want to work at, your child doesn't get to go to the school they want to go to, you have to pay a fine, whatever it is. But you draw some sort of line. I mean, that's mandatory vaccination. Compulsory vaccination, which we don't have in this country, is you get a vaccine whether you want to or not, which we did have once in Philadelphia, actually, so you might remember this, in 1991 when we had that huge measles outbreak. It was based on uh, two fundamentalist churches that chose not to vaccinate their children. And so we had 1,400 cases of measles and nine deaths from measles in the city over just a three-month period. It was awful. And so we had compulsory vaccination. We made those parents vaccinate their children in those two faith-healing churches, even though this is not what they want to do. And the ACLU refused to represent them, which was another major milestone that I sort of couldn't believe at the time. So, Paul, I know that being an advocate for vaccines has made you a target of these anti-vaxxers. What's that like? Um, I understand that when you weigh in on what is, if not a scientifically controversial area, a culturally controversial area, that you are going to engender some hate. I mean, I just think it comes with the territory. I try not to take it personally. A a few times I've had my life threatened to the point that the FBI got involved, which is to say they were real threats. So that obviously worried me. Once my children were threatened, that obviously worried me. But I just think you cross the line from science to politics, the minute that you start to pull the curtain back and take a closer look at the anti-vaccine people and their funding, which I've done in books, I think you put an X on your back. That comes with the territory. You know, Zeke, another reason that the pandemic might have long-term negative effects on immunization rates is because of the economic consequences. There are tens of millions of adults filing for unemployment, and a lot of them are going to lose their health insurance. Unless your state has really good Medicaid, those kids will be uninsured, and their parents might not want to pay out of pocket for vaccinations. What do we do about that? Jonathan, you're 100% right. That is a serious problem. Before COVID, we had 4 million children without health insurance. The ACA did take away co-pays and deductibles so that we would lower the barrier to getting these preventative services. But yeah, I think coming out of COVID, one of the big pressing issues is going to be how do we get to true universal coverage? Not 90%, which is what we had before COVID started, but 100%. How do we get everyone covered? We're going to have to get a situation where everyone has insurance by default. You don't get caught in between employer-sponsored insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid, and try to figure out what you're eligible for. There's some default, and if you don't have another port of coverage, you have Medicaid or 
some other system. I think that's probably the direction we're heading in. I don't see us heading in the Medicare for all. I think for a variety of reasons that's tainted. So we're going to have to be creative about how we get to universal coverage. But I do think the population is going to begin as part of the post-COVID response demanding it. Well, I hope you're right, Zeke, because if we don't take care of our kids, it's hard to see what else we care about as a country. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, and Zeke Emanuel. That's me. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Ramiro. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Bayer. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Chris Zabriskie. If you like this episode, make sure to rate us and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at Make the Call Pod. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Stay safe.